I'm Paul Kennedy, and this is Ideas on the Origins of the Modern Public. When you look at a map, particularly a map of your own country, you're looking at a description, a, a visual description of your country, but you're also looking at yourself. There's a sense in which that map is a mirror in which you see yourself in a new way, and you have a, a new identity that develops from that. Maps of one sort or another go back a long way. There's a rudimentary map of the heavens in the caves at Lascaux. But in Europe, in the Middle Ages, there were very few people who'd ever seen one, and such maps as there were owed more to religion than to science. Then in the 16th century, advances in cartography made maps more accurate, and the printing press put them into many more hands. What people saw when they looked at these maps was not just a new image of the place represented, but also a new image of themselves. Seeing a map of England made one English in a new way. New national identities began to coalesce, and not just around maps, but also around literature and language. One of the great projects of almost every European nation that is starting to constitute itself in the modern sense in this period is to come to terms with its own national language in some systematic way. And taken all together, you see that there is a, a kind of dawning awareness that language is something about which people can speculate, theorize, uh, disagree, rather than simply live in it like a fish is in water. Self-consciousness about language, like an awareness of maps, reflected the growing importance of civic and national identities in 16th century Europe. Stimulated by new media like the printing press, people developed wider interests. And around these new interests, new kinds of association began to take form. A group of scholars who have been studying this period call these new associations publics, and regard them as the seeds of our contemporary conception of the public. Their five-year research project, centered on McGill, is called Making Publics, Media, Markets, and Association in Early Modern Europe. And this idea series is based on their findings. David Cayley has been following the work of Making Publics, and today he continues his series about it with a look at the beginnings of the modern nation-state. Here's David Cayley. It's hard to imagine anything more thoroughly taken for granted in the contemporary world than the study of language. We spend years in school being taught the proper use of our native tongues. Etymologies, grammars, and guides to correct pronunciation, punctuation, and syntax are all at hand. In many countries, national academies regulate the national language and guard its purity. But all this was unheard of until the years around 1500. Ancient Latin and Greek were proper objects of study. Vernacular languages, the languages in everyday use, were not. They were shaped in the mouths of their speakers without instruction or regulation of any kind. Then a dramatic change began to occur. Roland Green is professor of English and comparative literature at Stanford University, 
and a scholar of early modern literature in Europe and its transatlantic colonies. It's a, a period of self-consciousness about language. It's the period in which there is, more than in the past, a much more widespread awareness that language is not only the personal and the interpersonal property of individuals, which has always been there for everyone, but rather a field of study, something about which it's possible to theorize, something about which it's possible to uh, start to construct much more systematic etymologies. It's the period of the first dictionaries. All of these things emerge in the course of the 16th century, especially the first half of the 16th century. And taken all together, you see that there is a, a kind of dawning awareness that language is something about which people can speculate, uh, theorize, uh, disagree, rather than simply live in it. It becomes possible to adopt a standpoint on it and look, looking at it as if it were from the outside or historically or speculatively rather than simply to be in it like a fish is in water. This step outside language was taken throughout Western Europe. In Spain, for example, in 1492, a humanist scholar by the name of Antonio de Nebrija published the first grammar of the Castilian tongue. In the dedication to Queen Isabella, which begins the work, he tells the Queen that up to the time of his writing, the speech of her subjects has been left, in his words, loose and unruly. But now it is time, he says, to produce a language of one standard tenor with which she can rule both her own land and the empire she is about to acquire. One of the great projects of almost every European nation that is starting to constitute itself in the modern sense in this period is to come to terms with its own national language in some systematic way. The famous example that everyone always gives is uh, Antonio de Nebrija's publication in 1492 of the Gramatica de la Lengua Castellana, the, gram the, gram the first grammar of the Castilian language, which is the first grammar of a European vernacular. And what we customarily say about Nebrija is that the publication of that text in 1492 is as much a part of the nation-building project of early modern Spain as the other two events of 1492, the, the reconquest of Granada, which uh, Christianizes the country, ostensibly, and Columbus's enterprise of, of also of that year, which expands the scope of that nation and gives it a whole new set of resources that it didn't have before. Many of us would say that the linguistic awareness that's involved in Nebrija's publication of that grammar is the essential third leg of that stool in creating the modern sense of a Spanish nation. And it's not very long before similar things occur in the other vernaculars, re-examinations of what it is to have a vernacular, of whether it's feasible to think of a vernacular like French or English or Spanish as being on the same footing as Greek or Latin. People have a great deal of doubt about that for a very long time throughout the 16th century, from beginning to end of the century, really, but that's a recurring theme. And uh, what it is to have a people that is in some sense constituted by a common language, that becomes one of the first common definitions of what a nation is in the modern sense, is that there's a national language that people have in common. Creating national languages, as Nebriha proposed to do with what he called his artificial Castilian, required a new way of thinking about the vernacular tongues from which these languages were to be built up. 
only the classical languages possessed standardized grammars. And so it was along the lines of these antique grammars, Roland Green says, that Nebrija sought to remodel Castilian into a general and imperial Spanish. He's trying to take the principles that people know from the grammars of Latin and, and Greek and apply them to a language that people speak every day, which at that time it's not an easy assumption that it's worth doing that with a vernacular. First of all, the question of whether they have grammars in the classical sense. You know what language, as a native from the inside, a vernacular, to try to learn it grammatically is, a, as it were, to learn it from the outside. And there's a lot of question in this period for at least the first half of the 16th century as to whether vernaculars really have that inside and outside in the way that everybody knows that the classical languages do. So one of his purposes is to get his fellow Spaniards to look at their own language, as it were, from the outside and grant it that kind of seriousness and that kind of detachment that would make it a worthy object of study. You know, it's a little bit the, like the way... In vernaculars beget vernaculars, and what, what the vernaculars were to them, you know, we think of our own vernaculars as institutionalized in some sense, but we have further vernaculars like slang uh, or tech speak or something like that that we don't think of yet as institutionalized. And they, they think of their own national vernaculars like English, French, Spanish. Up to a certain point in the Renaissance, they do think of them as non-institutionalized in the way that we would think of something that that is emergent in, you know, in our lifetimes or something that is a, a kind of a slang or a kind of argo or something like that. And if somebody comes out with a grammar of the language of hip-hop or a grammar of tech speak or something like that, you know, pr there's going to be a predictable reaction from some people who will say that's not worth doing or there is what they would be saying in effect is what a lot of people were saying up till the 16th century, which is that there is no worthwhile vantage point from outside that vernacular from which to evaluate it as a kind of systematic operation with, of cultural importance. And that's the problem for theorists of language in the early modern period, how to overcome that kind of skepticism. And I should also say they're, they're ambivalent themselves. You can't be immune from this skepticism. If you are a good humanist, you entertain doubts about this. And even Nebrija will say, as much as he's trying to promote Castilian, he will also say in some moments of doubt, Look how shabbily we use it. Look what trivial things we expend it on. You know, look how much my countrymen spend their time reading uh, worthless chivalric romances. Is that the best thing that this language can do? You know, it's uh, there's a kind. <laughs> Where have of, you heard that before? There's a kind of yeah. There's a kind of uh, doubt that creeps into the project, even at the same moment that he's promoting the language so strenuously. His doubts, notwithstanding, Antonio de Nebrija confidently tells his queen that his standardized Spanish will elevate the taste of his countrymen, as well as providing an instrument of governance befitting a modern state. His claims were soon echoed in other modernizing countries. An index of the change that was occurring, Roland Green says, is the growing use in all these countries of a second, more abstract term for speech. In English, the word tongue is increasingly supplemented by the word language. In French, langue, tongue, is supplemented by langage. In Spanish, lengua by lenguaje, and so on. The homelier, more natural word doesn't disappear. One can still speak of the English tongue. But the second term is increasingly used to signify the artificial character of language. 
languages, says Joachim Dubelet in his now classic defense of the French language, are made, not born. He's arguing for this notion that really begins in a less systematic way with Nebricha, that we should think about how languages are constituted, not entirely as natural phenomena that can't be abstracted and made historical and speculated about, but that we need to think about languages as constructs of one sort or another. And that this is part of the emergence of this, what I'm calling the second term of, you know, from tongue to language, the second more abstract term involves this kind of growing self-consciousness about the nature of the vernacular. So he's arguing that, and even in 1549, this is still a radical statement to a lot of people that a language is made and not born, implies, among other things, that you are questioning, if not breaking, the Adamic connection to language that comes from the Bible that says that language is installed in human beings by God and that uh, language is, is one of our first bonds with the Creator. What he, without canceling that idea, what Dubelet wants people to think is also that at the same time they know in this period from discovery, from trade, from all kinds of cross-cultural exchange that language is in some ways not just a primordial attainment but is also uh, concocted, accumulated out of a lot of different influences, the vocabulary that comes from other places, the words that get passed on on the basis of the growing experience of Europeans in this era. And so he wants people to think of their language in a way in both senses, in a kind of primordial way, but also to balance that with a, a sense of language as made or constructed from the outside, from the outside in. To see language as something made was also to see it as something capable of being remade, as Jubilee, in fact, wished to remake the French language. And this new attitude was a critical first step, Roland Green believes, to a more distanced and objective view of things generally. I think it's a crucial stage in the, in the, the process that leads up to, say, the rise of empirical science and the things that are happening in the beginning of the 17th century that almost as a preliminary to that kind of self-consciousness about the natural world, you have to have a kind of self-consciousness about the language that people speak every day and start to think about even the very vocabulary that you're going to use for talking about the natural world as a constructed vocabulary, not, not only a God-given vocabulary, but rather a, a something concocted out of multiple sources and upon which it's possible to gain a kind of detached distance. Once you have that understanding, then you're collectively in a position to start speculating about other things as well. But since we think about and talk about everything in the world through language, the self-consciousness about language itself is almost a kind of prerequisite to thinking self-consciously and quizzically and inquisitively about everything else in the world. To stand back from language was to see it, in Roland Green's words, as not only God-given. But this is not to say that the humanist scholars of the 16th century were, by any means, abandoning a religious perspective. They were, rather, giving the old stories a new twist. Two biblical narratives had traditionally framed discussion of language. The first was the Old Testament account of Babel, where the people try to build a tower up to heaven, and God, alarmed at their unrestrained ambition, responds, the King James Bible says, by confounding their language 
that they might not understand one another's speech. The second was the New Testament description of Pentecost, when the followers of Jesus begin to speak in strange tongues, but each of their listeners, men out of every nation under heaven, the Bible says, hears his own language being spoken. These stories were still told in the 16th century, but with a new significance. The Tower of Babel is often treated as a kind of parable for the contemporary situation in which there are multiple and multiplying languages and vernaculars, especially through the incipient globalization of some of these empires in the sense that they're an empire like Spain rules over multiple linguistic communities and how are they going to speak to each other. So the, the Babel thing becomes a kind of uh, warning or parable that is often adduced when people are thinking about the need to pull together languages in a kind of systematic way. The Pentecost story is a different one because it relies on the idea that faith is the linguistic uh, glue that holds communities together. And that too becomes a parable, not because these observers want to rely on faith as the linguistic common denominator. They wouldn't discount that, but they are a little too empirical to want to rely only on faith. And what they want to do is to think about Pentecost as a, a model for ways of thinking thinking and speaking not so much in a common language as in, which is what the Bible literally claims, that although they speak in Pentecost, although they come from different linguistic communities and they speak different languages, they all hear the same language when God works his act there. These early modern observers are not so much interested in all speaking the same language, I think, as in applying the Pentecost story to the possibility that through reflexiveness, on, about language itself, that there would that would be the kind of common language of people interested in language. So that, uh, in a sense, faith is complemented by the sense of kind of, of linguistic self-awareness that becomes for them a kind of new Pentecost, or the Pentecost themselves that they would aspire to. So there's a lot of discussion about in this period about how do you get from Babel to Pentecost in your own understanding of language. You can't wait for God to come down and, and perform a miracle again. You have to find a way in which the diversity and often mystery of multiple languages can be harmonized into some kind of lingua franca. And that lingua franca increasingly is turns out to be a kind of attention to and awareness of and curiosity about language itself that unites people who actually speak different vernaculars. The, the awareness of language in this sense becomes a kind of a lingua franca of the period. So that often is something that the poets and the playwrights and the preachers, too, are using as a, a model for how to think about language in their own time. has used a number of terms to describe the new view of language that he sees emerging around the year 1500. Abstract, detached, self-conscious, systematic. And all these terms support his claim that this view, as he says, from the outside, is a crucial step on the way to the new empirical science of the 17th century. This is the Pentecostal side of the humanist project. The world is a babel of tongues, but all belong to a common category, share common properties, 
and can be studied by a common method. One can begin to see, in embryo, the idea that science will unite the world. But at the same time, there is a strong element of national self-assertion in the new attention to national languages and national literatures. Tongue was ever the companion of empire, as Nebriha tells his queen. This new interest in the nation is the subject of Richard Helgerson's influential book, Forms of Nationhood. Helgerson was one of the founders and inspirations of the Making Publics project, on which these broadcasts are based, but he died while the project was still going on, in the fall of 2008 at the age of 67, to the great grief of his colleagues. I interviewed him in the year before his death, when he was already ill, but still enthusiastically willing to make his contribution to this series while he could. Speaking from a radio studio at the University of California, Santa Barbara, his academic home for nearly 40 years, he talked about a theme that he developed in his final book, Sonnet from Carthage, the connection between poetry and sovereignty in the 16th century. The new poetry, certainly in Spain, France, and England, was a response to a new sense of not so much national possibility, although we may think of it in those terms in retrospect, as of um, state possibilities. The term that was then most widely used and, and was uh, coming into wider and wider use was empire, the Spanish empire or the French empire or the English empire. When um, King Henry VIII separated the Church of England from the Church of Rome, Parliament announced that this kingdom of England is and has always been an empire. And what they meant by that is a fully sovereign state, a state that had no overlord, as the Pope had, in some sense, been an overlord before. The poet Samuel Daniel remarked at the end of the 16th century that the previous century was a a century of the improvement of sovereignty. And there was that sense, but they couldn't use the term empire without also thinking of Rome and what Rome had been. And dreaming of the possibility, not of a national state, the idea of the nation state wasn't clearly formed, but of thinking of universal empire, (laughs) that we would be the rulers of everyone. And uh, they aspired in various ways to that. The Spanish in the early uh, 16th century looked like they really had a shot at it with their huge uh, territories in the New World and their monarch's uh, role as the Holy Roman Empire emperor and their control of much, uh, if not all, of Italy. So these new poetries were, in part, new imperial poetries. They needed a poetry like Rome's because they were going to be the new Rome. Spencer talks this way, and Dubelet talks uh, this way about the, the French. So there's a strong connection between some, at least, of these new forms and their publics and a very particular political 
aspiration. Richard Helgerson sees the dream of empire as an animating idea in the poetry of all the more expansive states of Western Europe at this time, Spain and Portugal, France and England. Self-assertion was German scholar Hans Blumenberg's term for this aggressive and outgoing mood that began to take hold of Western Europe at the end of the Middle Ages. Other scholars have spoken of the importance of self-making or self-fashioning during this period. With the unity of Christendom shattered by the Reformation, the unity of knowledge undermined by unsettling new discoveries, and powerful new techniques of communication, navigation, and conquest available, individuals and states were, in many ways, making it up as they went along. And this self-invention, Richard Helgerson says, involved losses as well as gains. When you become something you haven't been before, you're alienated from the identity that you had before. This, to me, is particularly striking, uh, though it's to be found in many areas, in the case of the, uh, of the new poetry of 16th century Europe. They define themselves by renouncing just about everything that had ever been written in their own uh, language before they came along. Uh, that is, the English poetry up to this period, and even more sharply, uh, the French poetry up to this period, the Spanish poetry up to this period, wasn't good enough. They were going to um, become uh, something else. And there's a, a self-alienation in this process that was acutely felt by the people who um, encountered these new poetries and the arguments for them. Uh, one of the most uh, remarkable instances of this is the uh, publication in 1549 of uh, Dubelet's uh, Défense et Illustration de la Langue Française, that is the defense and enrichment of the uh, French language. Dubelet made in a very systematic way an argument that French though it was worthless at the time, could be as great a language as Latin or Greek. Uh, but the only way to get that way was to um, start imitating the Romans and the Greeks and the modern Italians who had already done something of this sort to their language. That is, to be made worthy to have a French poetry that was worth having, you had to make French foreign foreign to itself. And there's a strong element of uh, self-alienation uh, in that. And that was remarked on immediately, within really months of the appearance of uh, Dubelet's Défense. There were attacks, uh, one whole book-length attack on it. And a strong basis of those attacks was that you're denigrating French. You're not uh, defending it. You're attacking it and you're denigrating it. And uh, those of us, one of the uh, attackers said in a, uh, I need to back up just a little, Dubelet in, in his Défense had used fairly often the word patrie, uh, which is now a very common word in, in French. It shows up in the first line of, uh, of the French national anthem in the Marseillaise, uh, les enfants de la patrie, the children of the fatherland. But patrie was a new word in 
French, and introducing new words was a, an important part of the new poetry. Patrie was a new word in, in the middle of the 16th century, and um, this attacker on Du Bellay said, those of us who have a pays, a country, don't need your patrie, your <laughs> fatherland. We've already got a country. We don't need this new thing. He was intensely feeling the, uh, the alienating effect of the arguments that Du Bellay was making. Now, centuries later and even decades later, the kind of poetry Du Bellay and, and his friend uh, Ronsard wrote uh, in French, like the poetry that Gassi Lasso, the new poet in Spain, or Sidney and Spencer, the new poets in England, wrote, came to seem um, uh, quite familiar, but it wasn't initially. The, the very forms in which they wrote, the sonnet, for example, had never been seen before in any of those three countries. Uh, it seemed very foreign initially. So there's a, a strong element of self-alienation in any kind of self-making that requires a remaking on a wholly new pattern. What prompted this remaking is a question that has exercised the theorists of modernity for over a century. Their answers have been various, but it seems certain enough that one crucial element was new technologies. One that has particularly attracted Richard Helgerson's attention is map-making. Medieval maps had presented a kind of diagram of the cosmos, with geography bent to the overriding religious symbolism of the map. By the 16th century, the science of cartography had improved, and much more accurate maps had begun to appear. In 1570, the geographer Abraham Ortelius of Antwerp produced the first modern atlas. New techniques of printing and publishing put these new maps into wide circulation, and the effect, Helgerson says, was dramatic. It's hard for us now to uh, realize that before the latter part of the 16th century, hardly anyone had ever seen a map. <laughs> there were of course, uh, manuscript maps. Uh, some were available in public places. Uh, they were very different than the maps uh, we're now familiar with. It wasn't until 1570, with the appearance of Ortelius's great atlas, that there was ever an atlas, that is, a book of uh, maps that someone could look at. But with the publication of Ortelius's Atlas in 1570, a book that grew and grew in subsequent editions, some 40 editions over the next 40 years, Mercator's Atlas that followed very closely after that and that also went through 40 editions, national atlases within 10 years of the publication of Ortelius's great uh, world atlas, there was an atlas of England and Wales. Uh, before the publication of that book, Saxton, Christopher Saxton's atlas, no one really had seen what England looked like. <laughs> they could see it in Ortelius's atlas in smaller versions. Here in, uh, in the Saxton was an initial image of England and Wales followed uh, by each of the um, uh, shires of England. 
the very possibility of seeing the land that you belong to in this way was enormously exciting for people. These books sold in great numbers. Uh, people collected them. They made playing cards uh, with maps on them. They made lampshades with maps on them. The wealthy had great tapestries woven with uh, maps on them. You look at a map of England as an Englishman, and uh, you're not only seeing your country in a way that you never could have seen it before, but you're seeing yourself in a different way in relationship to that country. And the public that grew up around maps, and again, this is, these are multiple publics. There's a public particularly for maps of uh, the particular nation. This was true in England, even more true in the Netherlands, where uh, maps were absolutely essential to the, the Netherlands' uh, sense of itself as a separate polity. But not only national maps, uh, also shire maps that gave people a sense of their more local associations. And then, of course, world maps that uh, gave you an image of the world that you'd never had before, an image of the place of your own country in relationship to the world, but also um, an idea of possibilities, possibilities for travel, for uh, exploration, for commerce, that simply would not have been readily thinkable earlier. So maps had an enormous influence and were published in great numbers in this period, starting in the last decades of the 16th century and then, of course, carrying on uh, right up to our own time. We talk often about uh, how that first satellite image of our globe changed the way we think about the globe we live on, uh, made us uh, see it in a way that we'd never been able to see it before. That was even more the case with maps in the 16th and 17th centuries. You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1, on Sirius Satellite Radio 137, and cbc.ca. Our program is called The Origins of the Modern Public, and it's presented by David Cayley. Richard Helgerson suggests that seeing maps of their shire, country, or world gave people a new sense of their own situation and identity. They felt that they were seeing England and thus experiencing themselves in a new way as English. But of course, what was on the page or the lampshade was not England or Derbyshire, but a representation, as schematic in its different way as the medieval maps had been. You had to learn to see England in the highly abstract synopsis of the map. And this is an aspect of the new culture of maps that interests Leslie Cormack, another contributor to the Making Public's research group and the Dean of Arts and Social Sciences at Simon Fraser University. One of her studies as an historian of science has been the new vision of the world implied in the new geography what assumptions have to be in place before you can interpret a map, what new assumptions does the map induce. 
When we get to the, the 16th century, maps ostensibly start to look to us modern. They start to look like they are measuring real space. But what we forget is that that's because we know how to read those maps, that we are part of that same modern world that has internalized the symbols of the map to the point that we see them as transparent. And this was actually a hard-fought process to develop an understanding of reading this highly symbolic piece of paper as something real, as something that meant anything. And we certainly can see this during the 16th century, that maps in the early part were very precious commodities that were only in churches, only available to a very few. By the end of the century, people are producing maps for law courts to make arguments about whether they owned property or not. And so we we see a transformation there, which is something that's only done within a social context. It's only by having maps in groups of people shared among themselves, a training in maps, an understanding of maps, that we start to see them as something that has been, if you will, black boxed. That is that we no longer have to explain how it works. We know it works. The making and reading of maps was just one part of the new science of geography that emerged in the 16th century. Its history in England was the subject of Leslie Cormack's first book, Charting an Empire, Geography at the English Universities, 1580-1620. In that book, she argues that the study of geography fostered an imperial ideology in England and in Europe generally. Knowledge is power, Francis Bacon wrote around this time, and geography provided exactly the type of knowledge Bacon had in mind. It brought the world under measurement, and the ability to measure things, Leslie Cormack says, seemed to carry with it the right to control them as well. There's some uh, wonderful, well, shocking, but interesting exchanges that happen between New World peoples and Europeans, where they say to the New World peoples, well, you know, who owns this land? And they say, well, we don't own it. Every We live on it. Well, can you give us a map of it? Well, we don't. That's not the way we would encounter the world. And so the Europeans measure it, and then it's theirs that they can say where all the bits are and therefore they it is without owner and, and they take charge of it. So there is a, a strong feeling that surveying and, and mapping helps you to control the world around you. The possession of maps conferred superiority, perhaps even a right to rule over people who were incapable of this generalizing and abstracting gaze. The first man ever to use the phrase the British Empire is thought to have been the mathematician John Dee, who served at the court of Elizabeth I. In one of his writings, he quotes the biblical Book of Wisdom, where it is said that God orders all things by number, measure, and weight. From this, Dee draws the inference that those who crack this divine mathematical code carry so to say, the mandate of heaven. But geography was not only a road to domination. It was also a new way of identifying with places, 
and of asserting their importance. Leslie Cormack has been studying one of the vehicles of this local self-assertion, a book called Britannia, compiled by an Elizabethan historian and antiquarian named William Camden. William Camden was an interesting guy. That he, he came from not a very wealthy background. His father had been a painter-stainer, but he was an able chap, and so he went to grammar school and then on to university. And while at university, uh, encountered a number of important people, especially Philip Sidney, who, who had, was actually a, a friend of his. And uh, he became quite interested in especially the Roman origins of England and the Saxon origins of England. And so he started to be interested in, in collecting information about the localities, every locality in, in England that had some evidence of its historical remains. And, and he ended up calling this book Britannia after the Roman colony. So he got a job as a, as a schoolmaster, which is how he paid the bills, but he, in all his spare time, began to collect this information. And he had friends from university, and, and uh, they started to put, get in touch with him and supply him with information. Gradually, they developed a larger network of people who would supply him with information or, would, if he traveled around, would help him find the Roman coins and the, and the, the Saxon croppings of stones that uh, uh, all went into his book. So this, the, the first version of this, this book that he published was actually quite modest. It was a, an octavo, which means it was a, a, quite a small book. And, but immediately, people started going, wait, wait, you haven't said anything about my area. You, you haven't included this, these coins. You haven't included the heraldry of this family. So over time, William Camden lost control of Britannia. That is, that it went through many, many editions, both in his lifetime and afterwards, getting larger and larger, so that by the turn of the century, it was now a, a full folio, so a, a, a large book. By the time it was reprinted in the, in the 18th century, it was two full volumes. And basically, it became the space where a whole network of people who did not necessarily know each other could imagine their past and their present in terms of its antiquity and its integral connection to Englishness or Britishness. Camden's Britannia reimagined Englishness. In pre-modern thinking, the land was identified with the public persons entitled to represent it. The king was England. The Duke of Cornwall was Cornwall. You still hear it in Shakespeare. Here's France. Speak, Kent. Farewell, Gloucester. The places speak through their noble embodiments. Maps and local histories and archaeologies allowed the land and the private persons who lived in it to begin to speak for themselves. And this enlargement of what Englishness could mean was very much what the people who acquired and contributed to Camden's Britannia were looking for. In some ways, the, the reason that, that Britannia was so successful and went through so many editions is because Camden really hit a chord. That is, that there were a lot of people uh, living on their country estates and occasionally coming into London as well, but who were thinking about 
the antiquity of where they lived, the importance of where they lived, wanted it to be seen as significant. And so uh, Camden's work fed into that, but in turn encouraged people to feel that. So that what I think is really interesting about Britannia is that it both creates and it'll, it reflects back this whole sense of what it meant to be British and to live in Britain and to show the importance and the antiquity and the superiority of the countryside rather than that they were a bunch of upstarts or unimportant. I mean, you know, places like Cornwall, which was the end of the end. This, if, if you can think of boonies, that would be Cornwall. There were no roads to get to London. There were these Celtic peoples there who spoke funny languages. It was a, a very remote area. And so for someone like William Carew, who was a correspondent with Camden and, and contributed to his volume as well as writing his own survey of, of Cornwall, to say, this is a legitimate space. This isn't just somewhere I have to live. This, this is equally as important as London or the North or any of those places. That, that's a powerful statement to make. And so what Britannia says is England and Britain is all of us, that we are we are Britain. We are the public. So I'm not sure how far I want to take that in saying that it creates Britishness, because I think there's lots of other things that are doing that. But I think it's an important part of that. Lots of things, Leslie Cormack says, are creating Britishness around this time. The so-called Elizabethan settlement of 1559 creates a distinctively Anglican church. A self-consciously national literature is taking shape, as the English claim what poet Edmund Spencer called the kingdom of our own language. Books like Richard Hakluyt's Principal Navigations, Voyages, Traffics, and Discoveries of the English Nation are spreading the idea of England's global reach and trying to inspire zeal for further exploration and colonization. Camden's Britannia is creating a larger and more inclusive sense of England's internal scope. And each of these new national projects is bringing into being what the scholars you've been listening to in this series call publics. Groups of private people who assemble around some common interest and in doing so, change the shape of the social space in which they're operating. These groups are not yet members of the public, a term which will only come into use during the 18th century, but they are laying the foundations for that more general idea. Richard Helgerson attempted a definition for me. Some of its characteristics are that it's voluntary, that is, no one has to be a member of the um, theater public. No one has to buy maps and, uh, and identify a great deal of energy in the consumption of them. No one has to be a, a Bible reader. In fact, in that case, um, uh, uh, the state on occasion tried to keep you from being uh, one of those things. But these are voluntary associations. There is an element 
of association of involved in all of them, though it may be fairly tenuous in some cases, but a sense that you're part of a group of people who do this particular thing. This was certainly uh, true of the uh, of the consumers of maps uh, in this period. They formed themselves into groups. They got together to look at the maps of their shire, to refine them, to uh, add information to them. Uh, shire groups would um, get together and list the genealogies of the leading families in this particular shire uh, with their ideas shaped by the map. So there's an, an element of association as different uh, parts of the public would be more and more actively engaged by the uh, pursuit that they were involved in and would exchange their responses. Uh, so there's a, a sense of being part of a, a community. Now, that might be fairly tenuous on, in some instances. Somebody could go to a play, go to a play occasionally, and feel only minimally involved with all the other people who went to the theater. But um, to some extent, uh, it became a, um, a matter of self-conscious identification, as I suppose it is um, if you were to think of the public for your own program. Some of those people, uh, some of the people who listen to ideas probably uh, talk to one another about it, to have a sense of being part of, a, of an audience that shares a common experience and uh, whose identity is somehow um, related to sharing that experience. Membership in a public can define identity. Ideas listener, map reader, religious nonconformist, but publics also define and redefine their objects. In the pages of Camden's Britannia, England is being reimagined and, in the process, changed. And it is in this way that Leslie Cormack thinks that publics are political entities. She also tried to define a public for me, and she began by stressing its openness. For me, what makes something a public is that strangers can join it, that it has access so that it's not some kind of closed group of people. And so in that way, uh, the Royal Society, for example, would not be a public because you needed to have uh, someone introduce you and everyone would have to vote on you coming in. So clearly that's not the way that works. That A public has to be one that you can say, wow, I'm kind of interested in that, and I could become part of, of the group of people who are interested in that. So that's the, the first thing, strangers and, and access. The, the second, though, is that I think that it does need to have some kind of political consequence. And by that, I mean small p political, not large p. That the, These aren't people who are, are necessarily going to overthrow the, the crown or, the, or the, the parliament. But these are people who, by coming together, imagine the world in a different way, and that has consequences for the way they live in that world. And the, I suppose that's where geography and maps and descriptions of the world can be so powerful. I mean, the, the, the early work I did looking at geography, one of the conclusions I came to in my dissertation, my first book, was that 
imagining the world in a particular way produced the ability to live in that world in a particular way. So that the English, thinking of their their nation as an omnipotent and, and independent nation, could then go out and form an empire because they had something to move from. Uh, and they also imagined the world as one that they could control and, and interact with. So I do think that that's politics. Publics achieve their political effects indirectly, Leslie Cormack argues, by changing the conditions under which politics are done. The wide circulation of maps creates a horizon within which it becomes possible to think of England both as a nation and as an imperial power. The medium, you might say, is the message. And media, of course, have a great deal to do with how the public is constituted. I'll take up this theme in the next episode of this series, when my subject will be the printing press and the revolution it touched off in early modern Europe. On Ideas, you've listened to The Origins of the Modern Public by David Cayley. His series continues tomorrow night. It's also available as a podcast at cbc.ca slash podcasting. Production was by David Cayley, Dave Field, and Bernie Lucht. To find out about upcoming Ideas programs, you can sign up for our weekly newsletter. Go to cbc.ca slash ideas and follow the links. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht. I'm Paul Kennedy. The hourly news is next on CBC Radio 1 and on Sirius Satellite Radio.